right, we're going to have a little kind of special break here, um, a special guest. So Dr. Glenn Thompson, who's been uh, listening over the last few weeks along with us. Um, so he's been helping me make sure that I've got some of my figures right and things like that, and has been helping me put together some of the new graphics and charts that we've been using. Uh, Dr. Glenn Thompson, he was a uh, New Testament uh, professor, history professor at uh, Asia Lutheran Seminary at Wisconsin Lutheran College, lots of different institutions. And he got his PhD in uh, early church history and Roman history from Columbia University. And so while he was at Columbia University, the work of his dissertation had to specifically do with uh, doing textual criticism with uh, the letters written by a person named Pope Julius I. So this was a bishop in Rome, died in 352 AD. So before there were popes that had authority over the whole Christian church, they started out as bishops in Rome. And so this is one of the very first uh, people kind of recognized as, 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 as this pope, but he's still a regional uh, person. And it's kind of in that transitional period, I believe, where the popes are starting to have a little bit more broader power. But right now, this is a bishop in Rome. Julius I. And so Dr. Thompson's uh, dissertation work was dealing with letters that, that Pope Julius I wrote. He had six of them that he uh, translated and gathered all the textual critical data about together. And so he, this then got published uh, in, in a book, The Correspondence of Pope Julius I. So if you want to go out and get a copy of these six letters with all the textual apparatus, um, but it's, it's a, just a professional work of history, right? And so what Dr. Thompson is going to do right now is he's going to uh, just kind of give us a comparison, tell us a little bit about this is what one example of an ancient text is like and trying to kind of figure out the textual history of it. And that'll kind of give you a little bit more insight about just how mind-blowingly amazing the New Testament is compared to other ancient texts. Does that sound all right? All right. Uh, Dr. Thompson, are you there? I am here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes, good morning, everyone. Um, great to be with you. Wish could be up there in person, but uh, that's not allowed yet. So we'll wait until that can happen again. Um, early in my career as a pastor, um, I got very interested in this, what you've been discussing about the last few weeks, New Testament textual criticism. Um, as I got a little more scholarly credentials. I took part in some of the scholarly work being done in uh, producing the new editions of the Greek New Testament. Um, got to meet uh, many of the people you've talked about, Bart Ehrman and others along the way. Um, but I saw from the inside exactly how this all works. When I was getting ready to do my doctoral dissertation and looking for a subject, I decided to pick one that had to do with manuscripts where I could actually um, spend time with manuscripts. And uh, I went to Europe almost every summer for a number of years, went to over 50 different libraries and saw well over 200 ancient manuscripts um, from the 6th century through the 13th century. But my focus was on this guy, Julius I. Um, he's actually the earliest of the bishops of Rome, or popes, for which we actually have letters that have survived. 
and that's why I picked this subject and because nobody had uh, done this before on this man, which was quite amazing um, since uh, the Bishop of Rome is not exactly an obscure figure in history. Um, so what I found out was uh, there was, uh, first of all, um, there are maybe about 20 different letters that were said to have either been written by him or to him. And one of the things I had to do is go through and determine which of those were genuine and which ones were forgeries. When I got done with that, I found there were a total of six letters that uh, deserved to go in my book. Um, some preserved in Greek, some in Latin, some in both. And that these uh, letters, uh, two of them were actually written by Julius and the other four were written to Julius. And that's why the the title says the correspondence, uh, not just his letters, but uh, both sides of the conversation, if you will. Um, uh, Luke, you want to go to the next slide? So I'm just going to use these as an example of how people study manuscripts and what the conclusions are. So the first one was written to Julius by another bishop named Marcellus, of Marcellus of Ansara in the year 340 or 341. Um, and that letter, as you see in the chart, uh, written 340, was picked up about 35 years later by a man named Epiphanius, who um, was writing a book against heresies in the church. And he wanted to quote this letter, so he included it in his book. By the way, all six of the letters I'm talking about, the original copy is, is lost, just like all the original copies of our biblical documents. So in these cases, all of them have survived almost always within somebody else's book where the other person has quoted them. So 35 years after it was written, Epiphanius quotes this letter. Then it goes 900 years before we get have a preserved copy of Epiphanius's book that has this letter in it. So that's the one I call P1 here for the chart. Uh, and it was made, the copy was made in 1304. Um, then, uh, about a hundred years later, somebody saw this and made another copy of it, P2. Um, a few years later, somebody copied P2, that is our P3, and then eventually somebody copied P3, and that's what we call P4, made in the 16th century, just about the time of Martin Luther, when you were at the very end of making manuscript copies, because more and more by that time, they were just being printed. Um, we know this, and scholars used P2 and P3, but then the copies were lost. So when I went to Europe, I could not see these. I saw P1 and I saw P4 and looked at their evidence. So I compared all four of these to try to get back to what was the original letter, um, the exact text that Julius had written. But in reality, note, I really only had one, what we call witness, independent witness, P1. Since P2, P3, and P4 were all copied indirectly from that first P1, all I could really do is reconstruct the letter according to the textual evidence that was in its form in 1304. 
And if I thought there were mistakes in there that had crept in in the previous 900 years, I had to conjecture that. And so we talk in when we're doing texts about textual evidence, and then we talk about conjectures. And the conjectures are where there is no textual evidence, but I think this doesn't make sense the way it is. So I think if we just change these two letters around and make this other word, it makes more sense. Um, we have very, 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 very few conjectures for the Greek New Testament um, because we have so much manuscript uh, evidence. But once in a while, there still is a place where somebody thinks uh, and some scholar will suggest that. So here you see a typical example then of a letter and how it uh, has been perceived. Uh, letter number two um, is a little more complicated, but uh, in many ways not any different. Uh, this letter was written in 431 by Julius, who sent it away to some Eastern bishops. And one of these Eastern bishops, Athanasius, um, put it in one of his writings eight years later as he was uh, constructing a book. And somebody else copied that letter, um, probably from Athanasius, we think, um, in the fifth century, so a couple decades after Athanasius composed his book. And that copy was again copied or uh, copies of copies uh, were made, but in 1050, a manuscript uh, came along on uh, made in Constantinople um, that goes back not to Athanasius, but probably to a copy of something else, because again, there are a couple mistakes in it that uh, seem to mean it, that the it, he was copying from a manuscript that wasn't completely accurate. Um, a century later, a2 was also made in Constantinople a few years later. Uh, A3 made on Mount Athos in a monastery in northern Greece. Um, the fourth copy, uh, we don't know where it was made, A4, but it's now in a museum uh, and library in Spain, El Escorial. And the last one was another copy made in Constantinople about 1350. So here we have five manuscripts. They all seem to go back to that one in red, the lost archetype of the fifth century. They all seem to have been copied from copies that go back to that one. A1 and A2 are very similar. And so they have been called family one. A4 and five seem to be very similar and they're called family two. A3 doesn't fit neatly into either one of those. Um, but may have been influenced by both of these families. So here we have what we would call five independent witnesses, uh, but all of those five independent witnesses go back to that fifth century copy that doesn't seem to be Athanasius's copy. Um, but all of this we determine by the little differences in spelling, uh, in word order, in a few places and things like that. Letter three is um, a, yes, a different situation. Here we have two bishops writing a letter to Julius after a church council. These two bishops come from the West, and so they wrote their letter in Latin in 343. Sometime in the following 50 years, it was translated into Greek. Um, 
both of those were lost, but somebody a little later translated that Greek translation back into Latin. And that is what we have a copy of from about 750. So notice here we have a much earlier manuscript, uh, several hundred years earlier than we had for letter one and two, but we don't really have a better text because it's gone through two translations, a translation and then a retranslation, and that has garbled some of the material. So we only have one surviving manuscript that happens to be in Verona, and that's why I gave it a V uh, abbreviation here. And so with this kind of manuscript, we have a lot more of these conjectures where we have to say, well, this doesn't sound quite right. I think it must have come from this and so forth. But a real mess. Uh, it's very simple as far as actually not a lot of different options from the actual manuscript evidence, but uh, also makes it more difficult to try to get back to the original with just that one retranslated manuscript. Letter four is exactly the opposite. We have a much more complicated uh, textual history. Again, this is a letter from the same council, actually, but the council's official letter was sent to Julius in 343. Ten years later, a Western bishop in France, Hilary of Poitiers, picked it up and put it in one of his writings, 353. Um, that, um, if you continue across the page to H1, H2, H3, H4, we have four copies of Hilary's work that uh, survived into uh, the last millennium. Uh, H1, written about 825, H2, about 1150, H3, 1450, and H4 in 1590. Um, H1, um, we have yet today. Um, H2 was lost after some scholars used it. H3 was also lost, but not before H4 had cop made a copy of it. So H4 Did we lose Dr. Thompson or did we lose St. Paul? We've lost Dr. Thompson. All right. And we're still here. <laughs> you know, I could attempt. <laughs> <laughs> He's frozen I in the sixth you. century. <laughs> <laughs> He would test you after your attempt, you know that, huh? Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna send him a quick text. It looks like he's stepped out and is trying to come back in, Pastor. Okay, perfect. Because he disappeared. like watching a movie you're really interested in and then it stops <laughs> yeah like the, the old days with netflix when you kind of first got it yeah sometimes still. yeah sometimes still yeah 
We'll just patiently give him 60 seconds here. I mean, we're hanging on his every word. Literally, yeah. I've heard the expression, I've never had to do. <laughs> Pastor, in the event you can't reconnect, could you somehow try to get the rest of his talk um, yep. pre present it next week, maybe? Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll definitely uh, make sure. He gets a chance to hello to wrap things up. Hello, Dr. Thompson. All right. Uh, sorry about that. I don't know what happened. So should I quick pick up? Yep, you can just pick up. Uh, you were talking about H4 being a uh, copy, copy of H3, which was lost. Yeah. And then collection B, collectio B, the one in red a little lower down, is a collection of proceedings from church councils that was made about 525. Um, and that included Hillary's, the letter, seemingly from Hillary's work. It was a Western collection made in the Latin West and copied Hillary's work. Um, and uh, we have five different manuscripts of that collection between 750 and 850, but there are also three or four other collections, collection M, collection D, and collection E. So we have lots of different collections of early church council material, and four of them all have this one letter. Three of them, however, get their letter, copied it from collection, the collection named collection B, Collectio St. Blas. So the other three are just copies of that. So what do we really have? We have H1, uh, H2, and then the original Collectio B document, and all the other manuscripts of uh, Collection M, Collection D, Collection E, um, a total of over a dozen, about a dozen manuscripts, really only count as one witness because they all were copied from this copy that Collection B got from Hillary. Um, but it keeps us in a job uh, who are doing uh, textual criticism when we have to analyze and look at all of these. Okay, uh, letter five, again, uh, was preserved by Athanasius about eight or nine years after it was written and a lost manuscript. So the, the A's across the top is exactly what we saw earlier in the earlier letter uh, that had um, collection A in it. Uh, that was letter two. Um, here, however, we have an additional one where Socrates, in the lower half of the chart, Socrates Philastacus, a church history writer around 440, included the letter also in his church history. But he included a long paragraph that wasn't in Athanasius's copy. Uh, this, if you notice, was a letter from Julius to the Christians of Alexandria, and it was uh, congratulating them on the fact that their bishop, Athanasius, was returning. He had been exiled by the emperor and now was returning. So Julius sends kind of a letter of congratulations. Athanasius leaves out a long central paragraph of this letter in which Julius is praising Athanasius. 
So maybe out of modesty, Athanasius left it out of his work. But Socrates adds it back in. And that's a way that we know that Socrates' copy of the letter did not come from Athanasius, because otherwise he wouldn't have known about this extra paragraph. So this is the one place in my writing or in my study of these six letters where we have a longer section that uh, is not appearing in one strand and does appear in another one. And again, Socrates, we have several copies that have survived into uh, the, uh, for scholars to use today. Um, uh, SC1234, SC3 was copied from SC1, etc. And then we have Cassiodorus, a Latin translation of this letter down at the very bottom that is, survives in 130 different manuscripts. Cassiodorus took excerpts from Socrates and two other historians, put them together, translated them into Latin, and gave an early church history that way, about 510. So he seems to have, he know, we know that he took this section directly from Socrates and translated it into Latin. Um, but there you have a whole group of manuscripts. And in my study, I, I studied about 17 of these 130 manuscripts and used their evidence to come up with what Cassiodorus's original was. And then our last letter uh, is preserved only in one uh, in the uh, fragmentary history that we saw back uh, with letter four of Hilary of Poitiers. And that's the only one that is uh, surviving uh, uh, at that place. Uh, so um, what do we find from this? We see that, first of all, even with important people like the Bishop of Rome, very few manuscripts have survived into the Middle Ages. Usually, we have 500 years or more between the time when it was written or put into a book and the earliest manuscript we have. Um, often we have lost uh, parts or what we've come down to is a bit jumbled. Um, and so the job of the person producing an edition, which is what we call the work I was doing, um, is to uh, take all that evidence and then put it together. So if, uh, the purpose of what we call a critical edition is to take all the manuscript evidence and put it together. Um, you, do, um, you or any other reader doesn't have the um, option of going all over Europe, or you probably don't want to, and looking at all of these manuscripts yourself. So I did that for you. I take all the differences, boil them down into an understandable way and put them in the apparatus the footnotes at the bottom of the page, I have to decide what I think is the original text, put that in the main body, but then I give you all of the other evidence at the bottom of the page. So if you don't agree with me, you can see the different options and you can make your old choice. And this is exactly what scholars have done with the Greek New Testament. So the Greek New Testaments that we use uh, in our seminary, the ones that you, um, your pastors use when they do their sermon studies are exactly this. They are a text produced by scholars that they think this is what the original was. And then that 1% or less that we were talking about, the notes on which manuscripts have those, which church fathers used this one or that one, 
is all put at the bottom of the page. So what we need to do as scholars is uh, we need to assure that that process is going on in an honest way. And that's why some of our professors and people like myself um, keep tabs on what's going on so we can make sure that whoever is putting out a new edition of the Greek New Testament is doing an honest job about it. And that, that we can say has happened. Um, one set of scholars has been improving what they think is improving. Uh, that's up to some people's uh, opinion, but adding new evidence uh, and refining the evidence for over a hundred years in Germany. And that one is called the Nestle edition or the Nestle Holland edition. United Bible Societies tried to uh, put out a new edition uh, for themselves and for use by Bible translators who are translating the Bible into other things. They gave a little bit different way of putting the evidence at the bottom of the page. Those two were so close that eventually they merged together and they're still um, uh, printed um, separately because they have two different purposes, but their text is almost exactly mm -hmm. identical. And just a couple years ago, um, one of the people who I know Luke has quoted, uh, I forget in a sermon or a Bible class, Peter Williams, part of a very evangelical group of scholars at Tyndale House in Cambridge, England, they decided to put out their own version of the Greek New Testament. And that came out a couple years ago. I use that regularly as well. It just varies in a few very, very minor different ways from the text the others put out. So all of this tells us again that for the New Testament, we have you know almost total agreement among scholars what the original wording was. And the places where we disagree are so minor that they don't really affect at all. Uh, they don't affect at all our, our faith or our Bible teaching. Now an opportunity for some questions. I got maybe one to kind of get us started here, Dr. Thompson. Um, so Fran asked earlier, uh, so you've got someone like Bart Ehrman who's publishing all these books about there being all these vast uh, numbers of differences, but then in his appendix uh, and in person as well, um, he'll say this, you know, this doesn't change our, our confidence in, in what Christians ought to believe, you know, and things like that. Um, you've met Bart Ehrman. You've had breakfast with him uh, lots of times at the Tyndale House and places like that. Um, can you maybe explain a little bit uh, more uh, for Fran and the rest of us? Um, okay. Why you might have a scholar that that even though if he's in complete agreement with with what all these editions are saying, you know what's going on with with his take on this? Right. Yeah. Um, Bart. Um is uh, you know a bit of an enigma uh, he did have some sort of spiritual crisis at some point in his life and i'm not sure he you know he considers himself a christian anymore much less an evangelical christian uh, i've never really asked him that and he he certainly doesn't talk about it so he did have some sort of spiritual crisis at some point and he stopped being an evangelical um at the same time, he became very popular. Uh, he's a very good speaker, very engaging. And uh, I think fame and fortune uh, were part of the reason he's gone in the direction he has. Um, if you wanna sell a lot of books, 
just say, you know, the secret New Testament or, you know, the revised New Testament or something, and that'll sell a lot of books. Um, and he became very famous. He got us at the University of uh, North Carolina, I think, uh, where he was, uh, put out a lot of books. Uh, and so he, on one hand, plays to the camera by making all of these, you know, outrageous uh, things about millions of, of variants, etc. On the other hand, when he's in a scholarly conversation, he has to admit that, you know, this doesn't change the meaning of the Bible. And so he is, he is more what I would call like a many more liberal Christians who probably has a more liberal agenda of uh, what Christianity ought to be, a more rationalist agenda, and uh, more of the here and now rather than the next life. He, by the way, wrote uh, perhaps his most famous book among scholars was called The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, in which he tried to argue in this book that it was monks, good Christian Orthodox monks, who made many of these changes in order to make Jesus sound more Christ-like. I still remember when that was discussed at a scholarly conference, and Gordon Fee, one of the um, uh, conservative textual critics uh, from Canada, by the way, Regent University up in Vancouver, uh, where he taught most of his career, he got up and said, well, Bart, this is a great book, and uh, you've pointed out several places where a, uh, a monk obviously added Christ after the word Jesus, etc., you know, and uh, that this did happen in a few places. But what really impresses me is how after such a thorough study, you found so little evidence. And what basically he was saying is the exception, you know, proves the rule. Uh, this was exceptional when monks or some else, you know, made changes to the Bible. It really was exactly the opposite. Um, that 99% of those copying the Bible copied it as faithfully as they could and didn't make any changes. And that gets me, if I can have one more story. Um, I spent a year in Sweden studying Coptic, which is one of the earliest languages in which uh, the Bible was translated. And we have very early Coptic manuscripts, so that's why I was learning it. And I had an examination with the professor. You had to basically learn everything on your own. And at the end, you had an examination with this famous professor, a two hour oral examination, one-on-one. -on -one. So I was sweating uh, profusely when I went in to have my examination and I was going to have it on the Coptic version of the Gospel of John. And I got in there and he said, well, let's start translating. And he said, uh, oh, why don't you start at chapter one, verse one. And I had a huge sigh of relief because, of course, I could recite John uh, chapter one in my sleep, even without the Coptic text in front of me. So I translated the first few verses and he said, OK, now what's what's special about this? And I looked around and I didn't know what to say and I got real nervous and I was trying to think what was going on. And he and finally he helped me out of my misery and he said, don't you notice how the grammar here violates some of the basic rules of Coptic grammar. Um, notice how they've kept the same word order as in the Greek New Testament. Uh, 
In other words, he was saying, this text that they were translating was so holy and so sacred that even when they translated it, they even tried to keep the word order the same. Um, and this uh, was something I'll never forget because this is exactly the opposite of what you often hear. Many people, scholars will say, well, those early Greek manuscripts, you know, they just uh, could introduce changes because it wasn't a sacred text yet. And yet all of our evidence, even from translations, is that from the very beginning, people saw this as a sacred text and they weren't gonna make any changes in, in any way uh, unless, uh, you know, because this, this was a sacred text. And uh, I've never forgotten that point. And I think it's the same also with Jerome's Vulgate and uh, early Syriac translations as well. Thank you. Do we have any questions for Dr. Thompson, particularly about uh, um, what he's presented here with Julius's letters and textual criticism in general? We're going to keep him on for some of our discussion questions, but anything that he's piqued interest on. Otherwise, we're going to uh, move uh, on. Pa Pastor, I, I have a question. Yeah. Um, uh, Dr. Thompson, um, um, who, and don't take this wrong, but who, what, who do we trust? There are, there's another um, version of the New Testament being published by uh, another company. So, so who do we trust that they're not doing this for reasons of financial gain of who do we trust good question um and that's one of the reasons um why it's very useful to be part of a church body like we have um because we have a whole group of pastors but also scholars seminary professors who come from the same background who have the same um, point of view on scripture, etc. And among us, we have to keep tabs on what's going on out there. Since our wells does not produce its own Greek New Testament, we have to keep watching the other Greek New Testaments that are being published, the Hebrew Old Testaments, and making sure that they're being done properly. That's exactly why I go to international conferences, national conferences, why some of the seminary professors do as well. That's why I know Bart Ehrman. It's not because we share any uh, faith uh, as, as such, but it's because uh, I get to know him, then I know where he's coming from. That helps me understand what he's writing and know whether I should believe it at face value or not. Um, and so with the Greek New Testament, it's the same thing. Um, this, Scholars in Germany are not overly conservative these days in general, but at the same time, those that are producing the Greek New Testament and making these minor, minor, minor little improvements and changing in the footnotes, etc., um, you know, they tend to be more conservative than the average because you don't spend your life working on something that isn't worthwhile to you or it doesn't have any meaning. 
Um, Bart Ehrman's the exception, I think, where he has been able to spin this, you know, into a great career, if you will. Um, but most textual critics tend to be on the very conservative side. Um, I also know um, another man I met this way is Maurice Robinson, who is one of the uh, best uh, textual critics in the United States. But he's a person, a Southern Baptist, I believe, uh, who is still convinced that what we call the Byzantine or received text, uh, the later text, uh, uh, that was so common among Greek monasteries, etc., right up to time to the Reformation, gives us a better text than some of the early manuscripts and early papyri. Um, and we've talked many times, I've heard him speak many times, um, and he has produced his own Byzantine New Testament. Now, again, the, the bottom line is, uh, this is a debate that goes on, which one is better? Um, the Byzantine one or the other one. But as um, your pastor said just previously, with individual uh, decisions, if we took all the opposite decisions we make about which is the better text and used all the other ones, it still wouldn't change anything. So if you, if I, I can read, I have a copy here on my shelf of, uh, of uh, Maurice's Byzantine Greek New Testament. I can read that and be just as edified by it, um, even though I'm not a true believer that this is the most accurate New Testament. Um, it's mostly the, the differences are so minor that I don't even notice them when I'm reading the different one or the other. So the, the bottom line is we can't test trust any human being totally. Uh, and But that's why you, you trust your pastor because of his training, etc., on these decisions. And we as a synod, we have our scholars and our professors, and we keep tabs on the others. So when there's somebody who's really a rogue out there, then we, we make sure we don't follow those people. But, um, you know, even though we do not have uh, uh, fellowship in a, in a sense of worshiping with people from across the spectrum. Um, the same way that's our basic faith shared in the Nicene Creed, etc., is shared by Christians across the spectrum. So it's pretty much the same thing with our Greek New Testament and Hebrew New Testament. The differences are, are Im important in minor ways, uh, but in, in the main, what we have is a reliable text that is not going to make any difference, whichever one of these Greek New Testaments you choose to use is, isn't going to change uh, your interpretation of scripture. Thank you, I appreciate that. Pastor Thompson, or uh, Dr. Thompson, um, would I be correct in saying that the mainstream Bibles that are available today um, differ only very subtly um, and not significant. It's not like you're debating round earth versus flat earth. It, it's um, the principles of scripture still apply. So whether you pick up a King James or an NIV or, or whatever, um, you're still dealing with, with God's word as, as we can best uh, have it interpreted or, or translated, yes. I should say. Yes. And, 
and the reality is is there's there's just not one best way to translate anything from one language to another um, and uh, maybe you've gone to a, a play um, you go to Hamlet and see Hamlet uh, in the original where it's staged as a 16th century uh, performance and then you go to another uh, Hamlet that's uh, put in the modern Second World War and with modern English instead of the traditional. The play's the same, it's just put in a different setting and uh, one can say which one is, uh, we know which one was original, but that uh, you, you learn new things about the play when it's put in a different setting that you may not have thought in the other one. So with Bible translations, it's pretty much the same thing. Um, and that's why your pastors are always there um, with their knowledge of the original language to uh, guide things in a Bible class. And it is always great. Uh, when I was a uh, pastor in New York City during my time in, uh, at Columbia, you know, I always encouraged everybody to bring their favorite Bible to Bible class. And it, um, you know, one translation sometimes would bring something out that the others seemed to have missed, um, while the other ones uh, did the exact same thing in, on other occasions. So I think this is a, a, a real thing. I, I, told Luke I'd like to experiment sometime in doing a Bible study on the Trinity using the New World Translation, which is the translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I have a hunch that even though the Jehovah's Witnesses have kind of muddled their translation to cover up the Trinity on a few passages, that there's so many passages in scripture that have to do that with the deity of Christ, et cetera, that even in their own translation, they couldn't cover them all up, even if they were trying. So God has inspired his word in, in a remarkable way in which his, his doctrines keep shining through no matter you know, what the translator can do. Well, we're not going to get to our discussion questions uh, today, which is perfectly all right. Um, we'll continue this next week uh, as well. Let's thank Dr. Thompson for spending uh, his Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah. And uh, thank you very much. This is very, very suitable way of kind of capping up our discussions on, on uh, the textual transmission of the New Testament. And let's close in prayer. <clears throat>